Welcome to Wednesday night service. As you know, the uh, service has changed somewhat uh, for a little while on the uh, life groups that we hope to be doing. Uh, with that being said, there's uh, four classes meeting tonight, and I thank you for electing to come to study the book of James. Uh, it's a powerful book, uh, one of the first, the first book in the New Testament that was written, but uh, we're going to look at it from a variety of different ways, and hopefully you'll glean something from it. Uh, I must confess to you, I'm not at my best tonight. And the reason being, I'm kind of burdened, perhaps the same way that you are, with all the things I see transpiring within our nation. I awakened this morning and came to uh, the church early, and on the way driving down the road, I heard something in my spirit I was very uneasy about. I'm not saying it was God, I'm just saying something I heard in my spirit. And what I heard was the day America died. And it rattled me, I don't know why, it just rattled me. And I had a very uneasy feeling in my heart all day long. And uh, was studying throughout the day and doing my work and making phone calls and answering emails and studying and all the other things. And all of a sudden, I called a man and he said, have been watching the news? And I said, no. So I signed on to the news and saw all the stuff happening in, in the Capitol. And honestly, my heart was just sickened by it all. And uh, I do think in many respects, this is the beginning of the end in some ways. Uh, I'm going to give a little caveat, if I may. I don't see America mentioned in the book of Revelation at all. Uh, there are some prophets that do. Uh, there are some scholars that do. But in order to see it that way, they have to take uh, and make the scripture mean today what it did not mean the day it was written. For instance, when you see in the Bible an eagle, they say, well, that's America. No, <laughs> it never did represent America. Why should it represent America now? Uh, so you've got to be consistent with what the scripture says. I just don't think that America is going to be a powerful force to reckon with one of these days. I'm not a prophet of doom. But Israel has always looked to America for help and support. And I love Israel. I wear a star David around my neck to remember to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I want to be on the side of God's people. And they are his chosen people. He's not forgotten his covenant with them. Uh, during the great tribulation, the, uh, the Jewish people uh, will be going through tribulation, but the purpose of the great tribulation primarily is to remind the Jew uh, that the kingdom of God must come in through judgment. And that's the purpose primarily of the, of the great tribulation. But America has always been the bailout for Israel. But somehow, someway, Israel has got to learn that America is not her Messiah. Jesus Christ is. And with that being said, I, I don't know if we will survive long enough morally to do what we can do technologically. And uh, I don't know what's going to happen in our country. I don't like what I'm seeing happening now. I don't think you do either. And I've been extremely burdened today uh, for what I see happening, not just today, but for many, many, many months in our country. Before we get into our study tonight, would you mind standing with me if you can, if you're able? And let's just take a few moments right where we stand or sit. And can we just pray for America? We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Can we also pray for the peace of America? Father, we come before you tonight with turmoil within our nation. We're grateful for this great land in which you have blessed us with. There's political ideologies, Lord, that float around from media to media, from channel to channel, from party line to party line. But God, a nation divided against itself cannot stand. And Lord, we look at civil war upon the horizon that we don't want. Lord, they pin black against white and white against Hispanic and Hispanic against the red. And the list goes on and on. 
Protestant against Catholic, and rich against the poor, and the list goes on. But God, we are first and foremost in this room Christians. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ that makes us brethren. And we're thankful, Lord, that the miracle of salvation has brought races together, economic classes together, the educated and the illiterate, all have come together in one mind and one accord. That is a miracle of a miracle of salvation. And yet, Lord, our nation tries to legislate morality and it does not work. It fosters more rebellion, more prejudice, and more of the things that we see transpiring in our nation tonight. I pray, Father, let cooler heads prevail. Remember, Lord, the sacrifices of our forefathers. Remember, Lord, the prayers of the saints of God down through the ages. And remember that your church in America is still here interceding for this nation and for the nations of this world. God, we still have your blessings upon us as a people. But God, more times than not, we've taken your blessings, but we've given a deaf ear to you, the God of our blessings. I pray tonight, Lord, that some way, somehow, let there be a peaceful transfer of power. Let there be some way, somehow, Lord, a settling, God, in our hearts and minds, that in the final analysis, you put them up and you put them down. You hold the king in your hand, the heart of the king. And your word says you set them up and you set them down. I realize, Lord, that we've all had an opportunity to vote in these elections. Some feel like it's been rigged. Some feel like it's been stolen. That's left up, Lord, to the powers that be. But you are a just God, and we have now what we have, and here we are. I pray, Father God, that you would help the church to understand that our hope is not in Washington, D.C. Our hope is not in a political persuasion. Our hope today is in the person of Jesus Christ. The church has thrived the best under persecution, not that I want to be persecuted, but the church has survived uh, communism, it's survived Nazism, it's survived humanism, it's survived, Lord, uh, all of the Islamic states, it's, uh, it's been able, God, to survive through all the things that's been thrown its way. And God, as a church, we've given the, the society enough boards, our own right to beat ourselves in the head. We're not, God, perfect people. We have a lot of immorality, God, within our ranks. It comes out more and more every day. And people in this world, God, what is it they're supposed to believe in? A church of hypocrisy or a church that's been washed in the blood? If we name the name of Jesus, may we walk what we talk and may we talk what we walk. But tonight, Lord, I pray for peace in our land. God, I pray tonight for America that it might be salvaged. Uh, Lord, I'm concerned about my children and my grandchildren, as many in this room feel the same concern tonight. But God, we petition you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Lord, just as you were in the hallowed halls when our Constitution was formed, when the Bill of Rights was given, when the Declaration of Independence was penned, God, you are still in the affairs of this land tonight. So, Lord, we invite you once again back into our ranks. I'm asking, Lord, to put up what needs to be put up and put down what needs to be put down. Silence as you can, Lord, the voice of the critics. Let truth prevail. And, Lord, let those, God, who side on the side of error, may their eyes be open to see the truth and respond in kind. Now, Lord, 
I thank you tonight that as Christians we gather here to bear each other's burdens. There's so many, Lord, that are sick in their body. Many are troubled in their spirit. Many, Father, are going through a test and through trials and tribulations like they've never known. There are many in this room that's tasted death the last few weeks. There's others, Lord, that they know should you not intervene that there's death awaiting them in their homes. There's some tonight, dear God, that are battling with COVID. And there's some, Lord, that have diseases that even doctors cannot diagnose. But you, the God of all power and glory, we petition you. So fill us with your presence that we might be your hand extended, your voice proclaiming. And God, the kingdom shows up through us when we show up. Lord, fill us with your holy power. Fill us with your presence that we might be change agents in this world. And remind us that the church is the hope of the world tonight. May we live it. May we act it. May we proclaim it. And may you confirm it for the glory of God. Now, Father, on this campus tonight, there are many, many people meeting in a variety of different places. I'm asking that it will be a time, Lord, that we will grow, that we will learn, and, God, that we will take the knowledge that we've been taught into practicality of our life and our living. And with that in mind, we give you praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you tonight. <clears throat> As you're seated, we want to start out in the book of James. And if you should have questions along the way, I certainly invite you to uh, stop and just raise your hand. And we'll certainly acknowledge you. Again, um, I am not a two-before teacher, and this is what we're going to be doing. Uh, we're going to be teaching as we go. And I am not a two-before teacher. I don't want to be bound by the, by the two pages of a textbook or the four walls, okay? And I find that some of the greatest teaching comes as we ask and as we... Teaching does not mean to impart. It means to draw out of. And we're going to start tonight off just like it would be in a college classroom. How about that, if you don't mind? Let me put on my professorship for just a moment, if I may. And we'll just act like we're in a college class tonight just for a few moments. But next week it won't be that way. All right? So let's just start off, if we may. The epistle uh, of James itself tonight, if we may look at that to begin with. Uh, what we'd like to do, I think, any time that uh, we start on a trip somewhere before we study the Word of God, it's like planning a trip. And I don't know how you are, but I know the first time I went to Italy on a, on a missions trip and so forth, I got out books and I studied about Rome and studied about all the things that was going on there. And that way I knew where I was going. And once I got there, I could kind of enjoy the destination. And that's kind of the way I like to look at the book of James tonight, if I may. And that's simply by the standpoint, let's get ready for the trip. Uh, we want to kind of stop and figure out where we are, what we're going to see along the way, and maybe we can appreciate what happens once we get there. Again, the epistle of James, it is the first general or Catholic epistle. When we talk about the word Catholic with a small c, we're not referring to the Roman Catholicism. The word Catholic simply means universal. So the epistle was written as the first general or the first universal epistle in the New Testament. It was the first book of the New Testament written, as we'll soon find out. Now, the book of James, the epistle of James, is the most Jewish of any of the, of the messages or any of the epistles uh, in the New Testament. Except for two or three references to Jesus, it would most like read like an Old Testament book itself. 
The life to which the epistle exhorts itself is to a group of Jewish people who were born again uh, that needed to grow into maturity in order that they might walk out practicality the faith that they had. Uh, James wanted to take them from where they were at in immaturity and bring them into a place of maturity uh, within their life. Uh, we know that he was interested not in salvation, but interested in the people growing in their salvation. The writer of the book of James was James, was James, and we'll talk about who that James was in a moment. But with that being said, he was more concerned about the fruit of Christianity than he was about the root of Christianity. Understand that uh, the Jew was trying to fulfill every part of the law that they possibly could. You'll find no reference in the book of James to gospel to redemption, to salvation, or to the words incarnation. You won't find those in there at all. So again, his purpose was not to get people saved, but to get those that were saved and believers to mature in the knowledge of who Jesus Christ the Lord really was. With that being said, the author indeed was a Christian writing to Christian believers, but he also uh, wanted to take advantage of trying to teach them along the way the way of holiness, the way to become perfect, not perfect in the sense of no flaw, but perfect in the sense of maturity. I think if we could say anything about the book of James, he wanted to bring them into a place of maturity. Now, with that being said, I want some help. How many of you have your Bible with you tonight? I want to share a few things, if I may. There are only five direct verbal quotations from the Old Testament of the book of James. Only five verbal Old Testament quotations from the book of James. But there are many biblical references to the Old Testament, but only five direct quotations. Somebody, if you will, tonight, help me if you don't mind. Uh, well, I'll just point out to you. We'll do this later. Yeah, first of all, if you will, look with me. It's the dominant Old Testament theme. Uh, notice, if you will, there are three divisions in the book of, uh, of, of James. It takes the division of talking about all of the canon of the Old Testament. Are you familiar with the word canon? Not the kind that Barney Five tried to sell. Remember, what's a canon, the scripture? Anybody know? I want to back up if, if we don't know. A canon is what they used to see what books of the Bible were authentic and what books were false. It was basically a canon of scriptures called a measuring rod. Whether you know it or not, there were many, many books written right alongside the Bible, many books written before the Bible and even after the Bible that claimed to be as inspired as the Bible was itself. They were known as the pseudepigrapha books, and they were also known as the apocrypha. When we talk about the pseudepigrapha, they were written anywhere between 200 B.C. and 300 A.D. That's when these pseudepigrapha books were written. And what it would do, they would be some bogus writer that would write what they would call a gospel or an epistle or a historical book of the Bible, they would call it, and they would assign somebody's name to it that was well known. The epistle of Abraham, uh, the, 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 the gospel of, 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 uh, of Thomas, or the gospel of Judas or something along that line. And once they did those things, oh, I know Abraham, I've heard him, let's read this. So that was called a pseudepigrapha. It would be a false teaching along the way. And that's what pseudepigrapha is, it's false. So it did not meet the criteria of what scripture looked like. It was the measuring rod. Now the apocrypha, the apocrypha was written 
between the two Testaments, the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So those books are written in there. We know they could not be inspired of God because the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, tells us that the next voice you will be hearing will be that of John the Baptist. So anything that was written in between the, 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 the closing of Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist, we know would not fit criteria. So we have the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha books are also included in the Roman Catholic Bible for the most part. They look at, many of the Roman Catholic look as if though they are inspired of God. Now, you have Ezra's, Maccabees, Maccabees 1 and 2, Baal and the Dragon, and many of these stories are somewhat analogous to some of the Old Testament Bible. They might be good for history, but they're not inspired of God. That was one reason. Some of the things that they had Jesus doing in these books were out of the character and nature of who and what Jesus would do. For instance, uh, they, he'd make a little, a little bird out of clay and put wings on it and design it and breathe into it and fly away. That's not within the nature of what Jesus would do. So again, when we, I said all that to say the canon of Scripture. So with that being said, there are only four uh, five direct verbal quotations from the Old Testament, but we also know uh, that there are many passages uh, from the Old Testament or uh, references the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament canon was made up of the prophets, that's the, or the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the law rather, that's the first five books of the Bible. And then we also have the prophets, that refers to the minor and major prophets, and then the writings, that's the three divisions of the Old Testament. And we find the book of James referencing each of those divisions of the Old Testament. Uh, so the writings would be things such as, um, you know, the 11 books, which would include Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon and First and Second Chronicles, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, Ruth, and so forth. That would be the writings. So again, only five direct quotes from the Old Testament, but many references to the Old Testament, making James the most Jewish of all the epistles that were written and the first epistle uh, that was written along the way. Now, for instance, notice, if you will, as we hurry on tonight a little bit, any questions before we go any further? Anyone at all? Don't be afraid. If I don't have the answer, I'll ask Charlie, and he will help me. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I knew it'd be you. I'm going to get into it. We'll get into how we know it was the first epistle written, and we'll get into that momentarily. You've, you've uh, outthought me a little bit along the line here, which is good. Yes? It'd be the law, the prophets, and the writings. Again, the law, the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch. And then the prophets would be all the major prophets and minor prophets. And then the writings would be referred to as 11 other books in the Bible, uh, which, was, which would not include the law or the prophets. Okay? Thank you. Now, again, if you want to just reference with me here, look in James chapter 1 and verse 11. James chapter 1 and verse 11. It's one of the direct quotes from the Old Testament. And for those of you who are taking notes, I just do that for this reason. In James 1 11, uh, you'll find that the reference to that would be in Isaiah 47 through 8. Then if you look in James chapter 2 and verse 8, uh, the Old Testament reference would be in Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 8. And then the third one, again, if you look at James chapter 2 and verse 11, 
It would be quoted from Ezekiel chapter 20, 13 through 14. Again, let's back up. James 1.11. Uh, the Old Testament reference is Isaiah 40, 7 through 8. James 2, 8, the Old Testament reference, Leviticus 2, 8. And then James 2, 11, the Old Testament reference would be Ezekiel uh, chapter 20, verses 13 and 14. And then James chapter 2 and verse 23, the reference to that in Old Testament would be Genesis 15, 6. And then uh, Genesis 15, 6. And then in James chapter 4 and verse 6, uh, the Old Testament reference would be Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verse 34, I believe it is. So again, those are the five direct verbal quotations from uh, the Old Testament. Now, with that being said, let me hasten on if I may here. Uh, we see that uh, there's a lot of the, the language of the Greek here is, they say, the best written Greek of the entire New Testament. The epistle to James is the best handwritten Greek or the best Greek the most smooth flowing, the way it's articulated, the way it's spelled of any of the writings of the New Testament. As you well know, the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew. The New Testament was written primarily in Greek. And it was the best that was there. And still, there's a, a striking fact. There's a number of parallels between the epistles and this epistle and the words of Jesus Christ. Now, the thing that's interesting about this uh, is the fact the epistle contains more verbal reminiscence of the teachings of Jesus than all of the apostolic writings. And the thing that's so ironic about this, it's almost like the writer of James knew Jesus all of his life. It's like he picked up his mannerisms of Christ. He picked up his idiosyncrasies of Christ. He picked up the mannerisms of Christ. You know the reason for that? He was the brother of Jesus. And it, it comes out in the writings of the book of James. It's like these are things that they learned together down by the pond. They learned together in the carpenter shop as they grew up together in the house. James was the half-brother of Jesus Christ the Lord. So we can see that uh, it, it's simply reflecting the words. James reflecting the words he heard his brother say uh, all of his life. Now, with that being said tonight, help me out here a little bit if you don't mind. I'm just going to do a few of these. Do you have your Bible again like to help me? Okay, Donna, if you will, look up James 1.22. Who will look up Matthew 7.20 for me? Anybody? Matthew, Peggy, Matthew 7.20. Okay, Jane, Jane, would you look up for me James 3.12? And then who will look up for me Matthew 7.16? Matthew 7.16, somebody. Thank you. We'll just do those two. I, just, I want to get you a parallel. Go ahead, go ahead and read with me James 1.22. Now listen to Matthew 7, 20. And 24. James 3, 12. Now Matthew seven sixteen. You will recognize them by their fruit. Ranks are gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, are they? 
So there's several examples that I could give tonight about how that James seems to reflect the same type of language that his half-brother Jesus did. And, th- and James is full of those references over and over again. Which brings us up to the next point. Who then was James? Uh, there are many scholars that do not... Here's, let me say this out if I may. The Bible is not simple when it comes to scholarship. And there's so many people are anti-supernatural in their approach to scholarship in the Bible. You understand that? They want to leave the Holy Spirit out of it. They want to leave the miracle of inspiration out of it and think it all came from somebody's mind. The Bible is the verbal inspiration of God. He inspired me. And it's not like going to, I hear tonight and watch the sun and go, oh, I'm inspired. No, it was God moving upon man to write, which says the plenary word of God was without error. Translations can have errors in them. But the original manuscripts from which the Bible that we have was translated from is without error. Okay? Without error. So scholars have done a thing called higher criticism and lower criticism. You come into all types of redaction criticism and form criticism and yada, yada, yada. Now, with higher criticism, they are basically, during that particular time, are trying to find out the, the reason the, the epistle was written, the context of the society in which they lived and so forth, and lower criticism begins to criticize the authorship, the text of the scriptures, and so forth and so on. And scholars argue about this back and forth all the time. And it becomes very disheartening and very, uh, very confusing if people are not careful. So the same thing happens with James, the very first book in the New Testament written. Who really was this James that was the author? Well, it says in James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the way he introduced himself. Now, it's a popular name, James was, and it's a form of the Old Testament name of Jacob. Uh, There are several men in the New Testament and several men from history that we know that had the name of James. We know there was James, the son of Zebedee, who was the brother of John. He was one of the most prominent to uh, bear that name. We know he was a fisherman uh, that was called by Jesus Christ to forsake the nets and to follow him uh, and become a disciple. We know that he and his brother John were nicknamed by Jesus as the sons of thunder because they had that fiery temperament. That one wanted to sit on the right hand and one wanted to sit on the left hand. And God called them the sons of thunder. They wanted to call fire down on heaven from people. They were very impulsive. And James was the first disciple to give his life to Jesus. But we know that he was killed by Herod in A.D. 44. So that kind of puts him out of saying, hey, that's the James that could have been the author because he was dead uh, by Herod. Then there was the James, the son of Alphaeus. Again, he was another of the disciple, but very little is known about this man. Uh, He was simply referred to as James, the son of Alphaeus. With that being said, uh, some people seem to think that they may have been brothers, but I don't think that's the case either. There's no indication whatsoever that the James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, wrote the epistle of James. Then there was also James, the father of Judas, the disciple. Another James we find mentioned in the Bible. Uh, the scripture lets us know he was an obscure man. You find him mentioned in Luke chapter 6 and verse 16, where the word brother should be translated from the Greek language to mean father. This Judas was called the son of James to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot is the one that we know that betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. So the only other James left is the brother of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
He seems to be the most likely candidate of the author of this book. We know that James was never a believer in Jesus Christ. Can you get that? He was raised in the same household with his brother Jesus. Jesus entered in public ministry, and they thought he was a nut. They didn't like. They didn't. They didn't believe in him. Uh, they, they probably were embarrassed. James and the brethren were probably embarrassed by Jesus and the things he said, the things that he did. Uh, there was one time they went to visit him, and the lady said, "Hey, uh, your brother's here to meet you. Who is my brother? The one who does the will of the Father." He was closer to his own disciples that he called than he was to his flesh and blood of that day. But we know something remarkably happened. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave, Jesus appeared to his half-brother James, according to the Bible. James became a believer. It took the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to make a believer out of James when the life of Jesus Christ could never get it done. And James was a man that followed his brother Jesus, lock, stock, and barrel. And the Bible doesn't record this, but history tells us that James died a martyr. He was thrown off the temple wall and was beaten to death. And the last words that came off of his mouth were the same words his brother said on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. I'm telling you, there's power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's power in the words of Jesus Christ. And it made a believer out of James, a man who doubted the validity of his own half-brother being the Messiah of the world, but the resurrection caused it to be so. Now, James and the other brothers did not believe in Jesus said during the ministry, but it was in the, they eventually gave their heart to the Lord. Now, we know that James, the brother of Jesus, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, as you look in the church in Jerusalem, you find that James steps up to the plate and he takes leadership. Paul reported to James. Peter reported to James. When there was contention within the church in Acts chapter 15, we find that it was James, the brother of the Lord, uh, who diffused, if you will, every bit of the contention that was there. Because what happened during that time is that the Gentiles were accepting the Lord. And the Jewish Christians were saying for them to accept Jesus and be a follower, they've got to first become Jews to become Christians. Well, that meant circumcision. If you think it's hard to join the church today, it'd been hard to join church back then. Forgive me. But they, and James Gibbons said, no, they don't have to become Jews to become, uh, Gentiles don't have to become proselyte Jews in order to become uh, Christians. They just accept the Lord the same way that we accepted the Lord. And they abstain from idols and, 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 and meat that's not been done right and, and stay away from fornication, those type things. And he diffused because he was a leader that was spirit-filled believer. So James was the one that had a lot of clout within the early church. What kind of man was James? He was a deeply spiritual man. And he gained respect. And he was a man of maturity. He was writing the epistle to a group of immature people. Please understand that. He was writing the epistle of James to a group of immature people that we will soon see as we get into the study. Once again, we find that James was a Jew. He again was reared in the traditions of the law of Moses. And Jewish legalism stands out in his letter. Uh, we understand that. But James did not suggest he commanded when you read the book of James, he don't give suggestions. He gives commandments. He gives commandments. 
He quoted the Old Testament, said five times, but there are many allusions to the Old Testament, as I reiterated just a moment ago. And we gave you those in a, in a moment, or we gave them to you earlier. Keep in mind that James led the church of Jerusalem during difficult times, extremely difficult times. Uh, we know that, uh, uh, that he was writing to, who, who did he write? That's the next thing we'll talk about. Who did he write? Before we get there, any questions? Before we talk about who you wrote this epistle to, have any questions anywhere? I said I'm going to start teaching. I just started preaching, so I got to back up. Slow down. Let you enjoy. Any questions? Any comments? What have you learned so far? Anything, I hope? James was the man. Praise God. James was the man. Notice, if you will... It was a time of transition, and such times always upsetting and demanding times. There were many Christian Jews in Jerusalem who still held on to the Old Testament law. Understand that. Can you imagine the transition? Here were people that accepted the Lord. They were now under grace and liberty, but they wanted to hold on to the teachings of the Old Testament. One of the reasons for the writing of the book of Hebrews was there were a group of Christians, Jewish Christians, who were severely being persecuted because of their faith in God. And they said, hey, we're being persecuted as Christian Jews, but if we will go back and serve God under the Old Testament law, we'll no longer be persecuted. But the writer of Hebrews says there is nothing to go back to. And that's basically the same thing that James is saying. Put on your big boy pants and let's suck it up and let's be willing to suffer for Jesus and live for Jesus and do the things the way Jesus wanted us to do. The temple and its services were still in operation during this particular time. And the full, the full light of God's grace was beginning to dawn upon the people. Now, understand, if you read Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, you might be prone to judge these early believers. Uh, they were saved people, but they were still in the shadows of the law, and they were moving in the bright light of God's grace. Now, there might be different degrees in spiritual knowledge and spiritual depth and spiritual understanding experience. But understand, James took the leadership, and he stood up to the plate, and he didn't just say, do as I do. He didn't say, do this. He said, do as I do. I appreciate a leader he will not just tell people what to do, but a leader that will do what he expects others to do. James was that kind of a man. He was not a hypocrite in what he did. He stepped to the plate and said, I command you to do this. The voice of the Lord says do this, and he himself did it. Now, to whom did James write this epistle? Again, in James 1, it says, to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad, greeting. James wrote to Jews living outside of the land of Palestine. The term 12 tribes could only mean the people of Israel, the Jewish nation. That's who he's referring to during that time. The fact that many Jews lived outside of the promised land is evidence of the spiritual decline within the nation of Israel itself. Remember, if you will, when Peter addressed the huge audience on the day of Pentecost, it was Jewish believers he was talking about, but they came from all of these other people groups and all these other countries, remember? There were many languages that were 
spoke because they had been driven out of the land of Palestine itself. James sent his letter to not just Jews, but he sent his epistle to Christian Jews. When he referred to the brethren and my brethren, he was referring not only to his his nationality of Jew with Jew, but also to the Christian brethren that he was making reference to as well. Brothers in the flesh, fellow Jews, brothers in the Lord were those that were born again. So he was very clear, James was very clear on the doctrine of the new birth in chapter 1 and verse 18. There were times that James addressed wicked men who were not in fellowship. The rich, for example. He addressed some where the rich was taking advantage of them, and he addressed some where they were catering to the rich. It was both there. The word scattered in chapter 1 and verse 1 again, uh, to the 12 tribes which are scattered, that word scattering, uh, it means the dispersion, and the term dispersion was used to identify the Jews living outside the land of Palestine, but the Greek word carries the idea of scattering seed. They were scattered, but they were scattering seed. I think that's beautiful. What was the seed? Wherever they went, they were the seed of the gospel. When they went into virgin territory, they were the seed of the gospel. When they went among the Gentiles, they were the seed of the gospel. When they went among other places, they were the seed of the gospel. Wherever they went, they were the seed of the gospel. God always, always has a plan that we can't see. And I'm so grateful we trust him. He's working everything out for the glory of his name and for the betterment of every one of us. When the Jewish believers were scattered in the first wave of persecution in Acts chapter 1, it was really the sowing of seed in many places, and much of that seed bore fruit. The early church would remain in Jerusalem, in my opinion, had there not been persecution. And it took the persecution of the Jewish Christians to get them to leave Jerusalem to go into Judea, into Samaria, uh, and and, and into the uttermost parts of the world. It took the persecution. I don't think God instigated the persecution, but God took advantage of it. And they were scattered abroad, which means they were seed in the ground bringing forth a harvest. Jewish Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and they had needs and problems of their own. But being Jews, they would be rejected by the Gentiles. Being Jews, they would be rejected by their their own nationality. Think about that. Here we are, Christian Jews being rejected by Gentiles. Christian Jews being rejected by our own nationality. Don't you think that brought problems? They were people that didn't have a place to go hardly. They would be rejected by their own countrymen. So in this letter, it indicates that most of the believers were poor and uh, some of them were oppressed by the rich. So he was writing to the 12 tribes that were scattered abroad. I got more notes here and I know what to do with. Bear with me. I'm trying to go. Now, why did James write this book? I think that's a good question. Why did he write it? I don't think he wrote it just from the standpoint of having something to do. Again, we said he didn't mention anything about salvation, regeneration. He mentioned nothing about the incarnation or the resurrection of Jesus. He was writing to people that were already born again, but they themselves were very immature. Every New Testament letter has its own special theme, its own purpose, and its own destination. Paul wrote the book of Romans to prepare the Roman church for his invited visit. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to correct some doctrinal problems that was along the way. 
Uh, Paul wrote the book of Galatians uh, in order to a group of churches to warn them against legalism and to warn them against false teaching that was creeping up in the church of that day. And then we come along, as you read the epistle of James, you discover that these Christians were having some personal problems of their own, and they were having some problems within the church setting itself. For one thing, they were going through a time of testing. They were facing temptation to sin. They were facing temptation to gossip. They were being robbed by the rich. Church members were competing for office in the church, particularly in the teaching office. Now, you're talking about a church hard to pastor. This would have been one, full of carnality. And you know what makes carnality tough? They think they're spiritual. When they're so carnal, they think themselves to be so spiritual. I'm a better teacher than you are. I want to teach, not you. I've got more money than you do, so I need to sit right here, not you. And the list goes on and on. So these were, you know, it starts out with war against God and ends up that epistle with peace with God. Now, as we hasten on, some of the members were disobeying the word of God, the sick physically because of it, and more were straying away from the Lord. Some were straying away from the church itself. They were creating wars among them. They were creating divisions among them. Sounds a little bit like America tonight, doesn't it? As you review the list of problems, it appears not to be much different from many of the problems that we have in many churches in America today. Brother, let me, let me just say this. I think in this hour in which we live, it is so vitally important that we give each other grace. There may be times you say something that offends me, I have got to give you grace. And there may be times I say something to offend you, please give me grace. You may not like the color of the carpet, but thank God we've got carpet. You may not like the color of the walls, but thank God we've got walls. You may not like this, but thank God you got that. And if we can just not complain about what we don't have and don't see, and thank God for what we do have and what we do see, and thank God for each other. It's hard for the enemy to destroy that. And if we've got love that knows how to forgive and love that knows how to accept, not love that will push sin under the rug. Don't you misunderstand me. Love has got to be tough. And love has got to be right. But I'm not talking about a sloppy grace and a sloppy agape, which is a sloppy love. I'm talking about holding up the bloodstained banner of Jesus and be willing to die on that heel. There's a lot of heels I don't want to die on because it's irrelevant. But there's some heels I'm willing to die on because it's to maintain the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Lord. Let there be no schisms among us. Let there be no, I like that guy better than that guy. And I like that teacher better than this teacher. And I, I want, hey, he ain't preaching, I ain't going. Let me tell you something. If you go to church and a hound dog's preaching, if your heart's open, you'll learn something. Amen. You'll learn something. Amen. That was free. Like the book of James, do we have members who talk one way and walk another? Is worldliness a serious problem in the church world today? Are there not Christians who can't control their tongue? Isn't it amazing? Something three inches long can destroy a man six feet tall. One lady went to the church one time and said, Pastor, I want to lay my tongue on the altar. It's getting me in trouble. He said, Honey, you believe in miracles. Our altar is only ten feet long. 
One guy said his wife could sit in the living room and lick the pots in the kitchen. Her tongue was so long. <laughs> Always the women, I guess. I don't know. Men can talk too. Anyway, it was these type of things that James was dealing with, and they were not out-of-date problems. The same problems that James was dealing with are the same problems that we face in many of our lives today. Let's be honest. Don't we have to fight worldliness? I pray every time I go to the Sheriff's Department on Tuesday and Thursday morning, one of the things I pray, Dear God, put a watch over our tongue and thoughts that we not sin against you or hurt somebody. Because this hole underneath our nose can get us in more trouble. A flame of fire. And I think that one of the reasons we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of speaking in tongues, is because we're giving something we can't control to the control of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about that? Why of all things, initial physical evidence of the Holy Spirit baptism, speaking in tongues? Yielding that which we have the hardest to yield to the Spirit of God. Anyway, that's free too. Now James was not discussing just any, uh, just any problems. All these problems had common cause. Spiritual immaturity. Spiritual immaturity. Those Christians simply were not growing up. That gives us a hint of the basic theme of the letter, and that's this. The marks of maturity in the Christian life. If you want to know what James is about, the marks of Christianity in the Christian life. The marks of spirituality, the marks of maturity in a Christian life. James used the word perfect several times, and it's a word that means mature or complete. By a perfect man. James does not mean a sinless man, not perfect in the sense you not make mistakes, but perfect in the sense of mature, balanced, and grown up. Mature, balanced, and grown up. Spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in churches today. Can I just say it? A lot of churches in America have too many playpens for adults. And there are too many churches in America today where pastors have got to set the high chairs up Pull back the mustache and put in the baby bottle. Have you seen them? I have. And it's a sad, sad thing to say the least. We need spiritual food. We need mature food. No longer just drinking the milk of the word, but eating the meat of God's word. James looked at the problems he dealt with, and we can see each one of them is characterized by little children. Every problem that James dealt with in every chapter, all five chapters, it looks like babies. Think about it. Look at it. James chapter 1, 1 through 4. Impatience and difficulties. Kids are the most impatient people in the world, and I are that person sometimes. Anybody else impatient? Come on, be honest. My hand's up. Anybody else impatient? That's immaturity in our lives. In chapter 2 and verse 14 and following, talking but not living the truth. Sound like babies. Chapter 3, verse 1 and following, no control of the tongue. Chapter 4 and verse 1 and following, fighting and coveting. That's another problem they had. And then chapter 5, verses 1 and following, collecting material toys. That's what they were doing. So every one of the five chapters of the book of James is referring to the immaturity, the babiness, if you will, of these men and women who should have been growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of Christians who've been serving the Lord a long time that's never come into maturity. And there's a lot of, a lot of people who haven't been serving the Lord a long time at all, and they become very mature in the things of God. Are you following me? Yeah. What makes the difference? 
our listening to the Word of God, our understanding the Word of God, and our obeying the Word of God. That's how we grow. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. But it's not, here's what I think happens. Many times as we read the Bible, we often read the Bible just for information. But if we can let the pages of God's Word speak to our heart and cause our lives to be transformed by the power of His Word, we will grow into maturity as the people of God. And I think that's what he's after, is spiritual maturity within our lives. I'm convinced that the spiritual immaturity is one of the number one problems in churches today. Say it again, the number one problem in most churches today is spiritual immaturity. I remember reading a story many years ago. There was a, a new pastor that came on and he went to the board meeting and he laid out his agenda after being there for several months and one of the board members walked up to him and he said, Preacher, I appreciate what you're doing. He said, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to endorse what you're doing. We've done it this way all of our life. Uh, this is a sacred cow. We're not going to stop this. We're not going to do that. We're going to keep doing it this way. And the pastor got up and went over to him in Providence. I'm going to ask you a question. He said, I know you've been here a long time. And you're well-respected and well-loved, and I respect you, and I want a chance to work with you. I'm just going to tell you one thing. The Lord sent me here, and he sent me here with a message and a mandate. And if God wanted things to continue the way they were, they'd let the last pastor here. So he sent me here with a fresh message to build upon what the former pastor has done. And we're going to do it the way the Lord directs us. Now, here's the dilemma. You can either get on board and follow me, or else, there's going to be a whole lot of more people coming in that will follow me, and you're going to be left in the dust. Because God is going to send people to do the vision that God's given us to do. So you either get on board with us, or quite frankly, in all respect, you're going to be run over. Not by me, but by what God's doing. And about a day or so later, the old man came back and said, Preacher, I'm on board with you. He put on his big boy britches real quick. And you know, in churches, we have so many sacred cows, but sacred cows make gourmet burgers. And I think one of the greatest things that causes churches to die is we've never done it that way before. Church, I'm here to tell you, we've got to have wisdom and grow in spiritual maturity. Again, the first five chapters of this letter, again, suggest the five marks of a mature Christian. If James had made an outline to the book, it would probably go on something like this. Patient in testing, practices the truth, power over the tongue, be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker, and he's faithful in times of trouble. Now, with that being said, have any questions before we get ready to come to a close? Anybody quickly, comment or questions, please. Very important. Okay, when was the book written then? It had to me, again, scholars debate this. Some said it had to be written after the Jewish council of Acts 15, which would put it around 65 or so A.D. Others have said it had to be written a little bit before that. Some say, well, it had to be written by John, son of Alphaeus. Is that the case? It had to be written before 44 A.D. We know that didn't happen. So once again, scholars, most of them, put the writing of the, gospel, of the epistle to be written somewhere around A.D. 45. So that right there shows us it was the first book of the New Testament written because most of them, the gospel was written in the A.D. 90s and so forth. So that's why, and another thing, you don't find any mention of deacon boards. 
You find nothing about pastors. So the terminologies that we read in the book of Acts and we read in the epistles are not found in the epistle of James, which also tells us it was probably the first book of the New Testament written. Okay? Anything else? Talk to me. You're working me hard here tonight. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Sure. Yes. And in talking about the book of James, it always is like a slap in the face to me because when I was, this is almost about 69 years ago, I was about eight years old, and I was in my Catholic school, and I couldn't read the Bible. Scripture, scripture tells us to whom much is given, much is required, and thank God for that. Uh, to whom much is given, much is required, and uh, thank God you can read the Bible. And it's the only book you'll ever read where the author is always present with you. And that's the beauty of it. And uh, another great thing about it too, my sister, is that our spirit bears witness with God's spirit. And uh, I've been reading the Bible for 40-some years. 
And there's parts I still don't understand. And I never, probably never will. And I can go back and read something today. I never saw it yesterday. I was here, matter of fact, last Sunday sermon came as a result of my devotions the day before. It doesn't happen just in the Roman Catholic Church either, my sister. There's a lot of churches today, Protestant churches, that, that the people don't read their Bibles. And, and, and a matter of fact, there's a lot of Protestant pastors that don't even preach the Bible. And in some ways, that's worse than what you were raised in in many respects. There was an old lady back in the mountain. She wasn't that old, but she was dying. And she called me and, uh, to come and anoint her with oil. She was in a particular traditional church. I won't give the denomination, but uh, just a traditional church, uh, Protestant church. And she said, I've been going to this church for 40 years. And she said, I've learned absolutely nothing. I've given my time, my talent, my money. And she said, I'm dying. And they won't do a thing to help me. And she said, I was reading the Bible. And I found the book of James where it says, is there any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church. I called, they wouldn't come. So I picked up the phone book and found your number and here you are. I said, what can I do for you? She said, I want you to anoint me with oil and pray. And she went to the kitchen and she got a big old gallon almost of, 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 of cooking oil. And she come and she baptized me in that stuff. I mean, literally. And said, lay hands on me and pray. I scared to death. But I laid hands on her and prayed. And she went to shouting and never been shouting in her life. I didn't feel anything but terror. But God honored her faith. Not mine, hers. And she said, where do you go to church? I told her, I'll be there Sunday. And sure enough, she showed up at church. And God healed her. And she lived in that church with us for several years, if I remember correctly. And then she got sick with something else and was in the hospital. And she said, preacher, I know it's my time to go. And she said, and you are going to do my funeral. And this is what you're going to say. And she started singing a song, going home, going home. And that beautiful old gospel song about going home. She was all 40 years of her life in church and never got the word of God. But in the final analysis, she got it. And you have as well. May we rejoice in knowing that we have a book. I've got to close. Thank you for that very much. How can we get the most out of this study? First of all, we've got to know we're born again. And just as we are born, we have two parents. To be born again, we have two parents, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And you put those two together, and we have the birth of Jesus Christ within us. I think that we also need to understand uh, that it's important for us to read this book. And I encourage you to just start reading uh, the epistle of James throughout this next week. And uh, then we want to be able to obey what the Bible says, especially in James. And then be prepared for trials and testings. They're going to come our way. And if we prepare ourselves, we won't be unprepared, will we? We're either going through a trial or we're coming out one or we're getting ready to go into one. That seems the way, way life really is for all of us. Let me tell you, friends, a life of maturity is not an easy life. Growing up as a kid, I made a lot of mistakes, and so did you. I fell down a lot. I got in a few scrumbles along the way and a few scratches along the way. I made some friends along the way and made some enemies along the way. 
But I'm almost 65 years of age now, and I'm kind of matured as far as physically is concerned. But um, it didn't happen overnight, did it? And the same way in our Christian life, we don't get saved today and find ourselves spiritually mature tomorrow. But study the Word, believe the Word, practice the Word, and let God's Word take hold of our life. Amen? Any questions or comments before we leave quickly tonight? Anyone at all? Again, we're going to try to change the pace next week. We want to go through this thing a paragraph at a time, if we can, and try to get down into some of the nitty-gritty of this uh, epistle. Okay? Okay. 